With that said, let's jump towards our message. Uh, we've been in a series uh, a lot, um, already not yet. We've been looking at Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, talking about uh, the, the already part, what we have and are in Jesus, but yet the not yet part, the fact that we still live here on this earth, we aren't in heaven yet, and there still is this thing called sin that is a part of our existence, uh, and we're talking about that. Well, as we kind of get ready, I want to look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to turn with me there. In your Bibles, Romans chapter 6. If you're not familiar with your Bible or you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, you're going to find Romans a little over three quarters of the way through your Bible. You're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to hit a book called Acts, and then you're going to hit this book called Romans. If you head too far, you're going to hit 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Or grab your smartphone and find it there. Romans chapter 6. Now, kind of prime the pump for Romans chapter 6. I want to talk about my experience with Christianity. Those of you who have been here at Bethany for a while know this about me, but I rejected Christianity in my teenage and young adult years. I grew up in a good home, a very good home, a Christian home. They loved Jesus. They loved God. Uh, they loved me. They loved my sisters. I went to a Christian school. I was in a Christian church. I went to the Christian school up to eighth grade. I was in a Christian church every time the doors were open. Sunday night, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and all points in between, I was in the church. But I hit my teenage years and my young adult years, and I rejected Christianity. And the number one reason I rejected it, people ask me, Why, what, what really was that? I mean, the number one reason is it did not give me life. Matter of fact, what I found Christianity to do was to give, actually bring me death, not life, but death. One of the things I've learned over the years, and I've learned that this is somewhat normal of all humans, as I've read philosophers and looked all centuries and throughout human history, people have craved what I craved as a young adult. And the first thing that I really realized, I kind of put my finger on as a young adult and as a teenager, even I started to experience this, is I wanted to experience more. I look throughout human history and I look at the writers in human history and they talk about this, that the fact that most of us as humans have this nag inside of us that says that there's something else out there, that how I am existing today, Adam Nag was how I'm existing is, you know, I'm, I'm designed to experience more in life and more is possible. The second thing that I really put my finger on in my high school years and into my young adult years is I wanted to be happy. I was seeking happiness. Now, as Pascal, the the philosopher, writes, I love this quote of his. He says, all men seek happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about. But this desire for more, this desire to be happy. And when I came to Christianity, I came into the church. One of the things that I found is they taught, as it was taught to me, it denied this experience for more. It denied this this desire to be happy. And one of the things I was told, I remember very vividly, Adam, those desires are sinful and they're selfish. And I was taught growing up that you need to die to self and think of others above yourself. Now, I don't want to get into that this morning, but those are very true things. I just believe they're out of context. Along with that, one of the things that was taught to me is I would hear this. Adam, along, there's this whole pile of rules and regulations. And if you just obeyed them, you'll understand. You'll, you'll figure this out. Now, I'll be honest. I tried to obey. I tried really hard to obey the rules. 
But what I found at the end of the day was my soul was not coming alive. I continued to find death. And I had this nag inside of me that said, Adam, you want to experience life. And this thing called Christianity is not giving it to you. I shared this before, but I came to a place where I finally said, you know what? I want to end my life. This is so miserable. But I attempted that, but then I, I really didn't want to. I think at the end of the day, and I came back around and I said, I need to get this thing straightened out. So I went to a Bible school in upstate New York. I got to this Bible school and one of the things that they were, and they still are, extremely passionate about is the thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were incredibly passionate. They hammered this through our skulls. That me getting into a relationship with God has nothing, and they would capitalize and bold every single letter of that word, has nothing to do with me. I can't earn it. I can't merit it. I can't work hard enough for it. There is absolutely nothing I do to get into that relationship. It has everything in the world to do with Jesus and what he did for us. Now, when I heard this message clearly hammered day in and day out, they, they pushed this. It resonated with me. And I said, I'm in. That's what I've been looking for. I get my head around this. But I found something interesting that happened. And this is my experience in the church world. I think this happens to all of us to some level who have been in church for a while. It seemed that once I was in... Once I'm now in a relationship with God, nothing that I did to merit it, I'm now in, it suddenly seemed that there was this code of conduct, these rules that I had to obey. I found my life at that point taking on an unbelievable drive to perform, to work hard, and at the end of the day, here's what you heard me saying, I am working to become like Jesus. Almost as if, as I look back at it, as if they were saying... You get in on Jesus' merit, but you stay in on your own. It's almost as if what was really being said is you get in on nothing you do, but you stay in on everything you do. Now, I moved on from there. I left that school, went completed some more education down here at Lancaster Bible College, but I still had this nag inside of my soul that found me to be a real slave is the word I come to use. I soon came across a truth that landed in 1 John chapter 5, and we preached through this this past summer, and it is the lifeblood of who I am. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It brought me to a place where I finally realized Christianity is the message and the hope of the world. It's what I've been craving for. It actually gives life. And here's what I learned. And this is what we're going to talk about. It comes out of Romans chapter 6 this morning. The Christian life... The what would Jesus do that we used to wear in the bracelets back in the 90s and turn of the century isn't really fully, truly biblically accurate. It's not be like Jesus. And this is going to shock some of us. We want to get our heads around this. The reality of the Christian life is I am like Jesus. There's this cool little phrase in Romans chapter 6, and it's used all throughout the scripture, the New Testament especially. It talks about being in, this two Letter word, in, being in Christ and Christ in me. Jesus Christ is the perpetual, the ongoing source of our becoming like Jesus, not vice versa. Now, as we continue in this series, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, and here's what we're hitting hard on this morning. We are hitting very, very hard and very heavy on the already side of the equation. 
we're going to see that you, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are alive to Christ and fully and completely dead to sin. Alive to Christ and completely 110% dead to sin. That's the already side of it. Now, here's what happens. When we look at this, and we're going to look through Romans chapter 6, and the same people that Paul, the writer of this, were writing to, they did this too. Reality sets in. And we hear stuff like this. I am fully alive to Jesus. I am a slave to righteousness, this section says. I have, sin has no mastery over me whatsoever. But we begin to push back. And we begin to say, no, wait a minute, Adam. I, I say to myself, no, wait a minute, Paul. I'm dead to sin? Why is it that I struggle with anger? Why is it that I struggle with being patient? Why do I struggle to control my tongue at times? Others will say, why do I struggle with pornography? Why do I struggle with gluttony? Why do I struggle with drinking too much? Alcohol. Why do I struggle with, and we fill in the line, and we have this strong pushback that says this, now wait a minute, Adam, now wait a minute, Paul, you're trying to tell me I am dead to sin and I'm fully alive? That I am like Jesus? So we push back, and here's what we do, and Paul's going to confront this head on. What we do at that point then is we have this tendency to run back, instead of running deeper into grace, into what Jesus has done for us, we have this tendency to now add and run back into law, or what I would call legalism or moralism. Behavior-oriented, I need to work hard at being like Jesus. But it doesn't work. It does not work at all. And that's what my heart this morning is. And this has been the cry of my life. It doesn't work to perform and to work hard to be like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, biblically speaking, it's truly theological accurate to say I'm already like Jesus. If I am in him, I'm already like him. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. We'll start at verse 1. I just want to read verses 1. I'm going to read straight through verses 1 to 14. Just listen to the emphasis of what Paul, the writer here, is saying. Verse 1 says, what shall we say? This one, before we jump in, what shall we say then? What we've been talking about is chapter 5. We looked at two weeks ago that we are broken. We are sinners. And that sinners came through one person and sin spread to everyone. Every one of us is broken. And we talked about we cannot fix it. So then Chris came last week and he talked about the rest of the chapter. He says, well, we can't fix it, but Jesus can. Now, it's through Jesus, period. Period. That's all it is. So then it's grace. Now, so it comes along. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2, by no means, Paul says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self, catch this word, your old self was what? Crucified with him so that the body of sin might be what? Done away with. 
gone, done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Here's this little tiny word in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, verse 14, in my opinion, sums up the entire chapter. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, But what? Under grace. Sin is not your master. Why? Because you don't live under law. Law perpetuates sin. Grace kills it. Now, before we really dive into this chapter, I think there's something we need to, I think, grasp first. I think it's important to understand what the gospel of grace is. I think one of the things that I think we mix up on this is we need to grasp that the gospel does not ultimately make bad people good, but dead people alive. The gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus is not a moral transformation message. It is a message of, I have come not to make you good. I have come to bring you to life. We looked in chapter five, when I am in my sin, I am separated. I am dead. I am far from God. And the the message of Jesus is, I have come to bring you life, to give you life, to bring life into what is dead. It's a miracle. It's something that we cannot do. One of my great fears, uh, I found this this week as I was studying, uh, and an author said this, that it resonated with my heart. One of my great fears is that grace is primarily seen by evangelicals, Christians, as divine assistance for the process of moral transformation rather than as a one-sided divine rescue. This is crucial that we understand what the gospel of Jesus is. It's not about my moral transformation. It is a one-sided divine rescue. The thing I need to get through my head, Adam Nagel needs to get through his head, is the only thing that I contribute to my salvation, to my relationship with Jesus, and even the only thing I contribute to my growth or my sanctification is the sin that makes it necessary. The only thing that I contribute that gets me in, that that keeps me in, is the sin that makes it necessary. Jesus came to bring dead people to life, to rescue us, to bring us to life. That's why verse 14, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but you are under grace. He's brought you to life. Now to kind of work through the progression of this chapter, I think you kind of see this, and this is important to understand this progression to really understand what Paul's saying. Verse 2, Verse 2, we see right out of the gates, he says, we, I want to talk about verse 1 a little later. It says, we died to sin. You're dead. How can you live it in any longer? Now, verses 3 and 4 give this amazing, amazing theological truth. Verse 3 and 4 talks about when Jesus died, if you're a Christian, 
When Jesus died, guess who died with him? You did. I did. When Jesus died, I was united with him in that death. When he died, I died. I am like Jesus. When he rose from the dead, when he resurrected, verses 4 and 5 say, guess what it says? I was resurrected with him. Verses 6 and 7 drive home the fact that my old self, that sin nature, was killed. It was nailed to the cross, as the book of Colossians says. We are crucified. So therefore, I am no longer a slave to sin. Verse 8 comes along and says, we then live with Jesus. I died with him. I rose with him. I now live with him. I am like him. It's not be like him. Verses 9 and 11 then capture this real heart that says death is no longer mastery over him. He lives to God and the same is true for us. We are alive to God in Jesus. This cool little word in Jesus and Jesus in me. Again, it's not be like Jesus. I am like Jesus. I died with him. I rose with him. I live with him. Now, as we unpack this and the reality of this, I want to go a little further with what Paul says. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, and it's like he repeats himself. He's going to come back around and just with emphasis, he's going to state a lot of what he already said. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Very similar to verse 1. I'm going to, we're going to hit pretty hard in that in a minute. Verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. I want to pause here. How many of you in this room had to be commanded to sin? How many of you did I have to walk up to or anyone walk up to you and say, I am commanding you to sin. Why do we sin? We sin because we're a slave to it. We're going to talk about this word in a minute, slave. You, you sin, you do bad things because you want to do it. Because I want to do it. Because I have this in my mind. And as the writer of Hebrews says, sin for a season, it looks like fun. It is enjoyable. I have this desire that pulls me out that says, I want to do that. I am a slave to that. Paul's emphasis here is, is we are to live for Christ in the very same way we lived for sin. We were a slave to sin. We did it out of compulsion, out of desire. We should live for Christ out of compulsion, out of desire. Not out of obligatory, I've got to gut it out, I've got to work hard, I've got to do it. Now, as in my growing up years, I realized that that isn't how I was taught Christianity. I didn't want to do it. I didn't find life. And what people would preach to me is moralism. Adam, here are the rules. Keep doing it, keep doing it, just do it. The whole Nike slogan. And I found death and slavery in that. And Paul says that's because the reason is we should live for Christ and that what happens inside of us should drive us out of desire to be a slave to righteousness in the same way we were a slave to sin. Verse 19, he continues this thought. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin, hear this imagery again, you are free from sin. You're alive. This imagery runs all throughout this. The rest of verse 22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Verse 23, famous verse. Some of you probably have this memorized for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Then jump down to verse six of chapter seven. We're going to mention those verses in between, but verse 6 kind of wraps this whole section up with a big exclamation point. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We died to the law. You now serve and live in a new way. You live in the spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. Now I want to come back to verses 15 and verse 1. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 15 says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? It's interesting to me. What I have found in my own Christian existence and as I interact with people in the church is I've found that at the end of the day, We as Christians are scared to death of grace. We fear it. We run from it. We have this deep down feeling that if we go overboard as a church, if I go overboard with my kids, if I go overboard with you to grace, that what I'm really going to do is unleash sinful action in your life. I think of the reality of this last year, about this time, we preached through Romans chapter 14, living in the gray. And you know what I continued to run into as I preached freedom in Christ? Don't live by the law. I would have people come and say to me the same things I've heard all throughout my years of preaching the gospel. But Adam, you know, you can't just say that. You can't just talk about freedom. You also have to warn the teenagers that if they they go out and do this, there's consequences. Adam, you can't just say that because you got to also teach this. What it is, it's adding a little bit of morality, moralism, legalism to grace. It's this fear that says, if Adam, if we just hammer on in Jesus Christ, I am totally and completely free. If we just hammer and that's all we ever talk about, then I've given everyone out there license to go out and live as they want and do as they want and sin and wreck and destroy their lives. We are afraid of grace. And Paul hits it head on. It says, by no means, you guys have this thing mixed up. The biggest lie that Satan wants us as a church to buy into with grace, the biggest lie about grace is he wants the church to buy into is the idea that grace is dangerous and therefore needs to be kept in check. Preach a little law. Add a little law and legalism and rules to the gospel. Don't just talk about your freedom in Jesus. We violate, when we do this, we violate gospel growth in my life in unbelievable ways. And we perpetuate this imagery and picture that Paul brings out here of slavery. The truth is, at the end of the day, the truth is, obedience, that law that we want young people to follow, that I want to follow in my own life, obedience happens not when I think too much of grace, but when I think too little of it. Get this through our heads. 
Bethany, growth in my life, I become more like Jesus. Not when I think too little of grace. Not when I think too much of it, when I think too little of it. What Jesus has done for me, who I am in Jesus, when I get my head around the fact that he died for me, and he didn't just die to make me good, he died to do something that I could not do for myself. He died to bring me life. When I get my head around this, and I meditate on this, and I think and get my heart and mind wrapped around this reality, growth naturally happens. Often I've wrongly concluded, me personally, have wrongly concluded that the the way to keep bad people in line is to give them more rules. Basically to lay down the law. However, the only way bad people start to obey is when they really truly taste God's radical, unmerited acceptance of sinners. I will never forget my second message I ever preached. Second message I ever preached was at Lidditz Grace Brethren Church to their young people, to their teenagers. I was home on break, and the youth pastor said to me, hey, Adam, could you come in and could you speak? And I said, sure. I mean, tell me about the group. So he he sits down with me, and he pours his heart out for this group of young people. Same stuff I hear Chris say. He tells me about the pressures of life that they live under, the pressures to conform to their peers, the pressures to have sex, the pressures to drink and to party, the pressures to all this stuff in life that is heaping on them. And he talks about his heart form. And he talks about how he wants them to be free from it. So I remember going home. I remember praying about it. I remember thinking about it. I remember putting together this incredible message that I am deeply ashamed of to this day. I stood up and I preached out of Romans chapter 6. I stood up and I preached out of verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And I harped on and I beat them over the head repeatedly with, with stop living like this. You're slaves to, to immoral behavior. Live right, live pure. I mean, I, and I harped on all this law and this do and this perform and live right. And I missed the heart of the entire chapter. If you're in Jesus, you are right. You are accepted. I look back and I wish so bad I'd stood up to those young people and I said, I wish so bad I'd stood up and said, guys, can I tell you to please stop fighting for approval from your friends? Because Jesus has already approved of you. Can I tell you that no one in the world loves you as much as Jesus Christ does? Can I tell you guys that, and just make Jesus look really, really attractive because he is. Instead, I stood up and preached a bunch of rules to them and thought that I was helping them and saving them and keeping them from the carnage of their poor choices. It's what we do. We're afraid of this thing called grace. Just stand up and preach Jesus and what he has done for me. Progress in obedience. Those young people were only going to progress in their obedience I, as a young person, when I hated Christianity, I was only going to progress in my obedience. Only happens when my heart realizes that God's love for me does not depend on my progress in obedience. Legalism happens when what we need to do, when we get this locked in our head, what we need to do, not what Jesus has already done, becomes the end game. What I stood there with those young people and I preached at that room of 200 ninth to 12th graders and I said to them, hey, the end game is what you need to do. 
when I stood up and stand up and say, listen, guys, look at what Jesus has already done. He has given you everything that your heart screams for. He has given you the acceptance that you scream for. He has given you the love that you scream for and you so badly want. He has brought you the peace and the joy and the happiness that your heart screams for. Make that what Jesus has done for you, the end game. Not all this do's and don'ts and stops and start stuff. This is where the heart of legalism comes. When I think, when I get out of bed in the morning and say, okay, Adam, what do I got to do today? Well, let's see. I got to love my wife more. I got to be a good parent. I've got to, man, I've got to lead well. I've got to watch my tongue. That stuff's important. But I need to get out of bed every day and say, you know what? Let's start with what did Jesus already do for me? Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 20, look at it this week. He says this cool little word. He defines slavery for us. Basically, slavery comes up here all throughout Romans chapter 6. Slavery. I'm a slave to anything that masters me. Now, what I find often is we in America, America has a great history, very sad history, I should say, of slavery. And we in America are deprived ourselves as being the land of the free. So if I walk up to someone and say, well, you know what? You're really not free. You're a slave. Most of us scoff at this. No way. I'm free. I'm a free man. We're free people. But if there is something in your life, if there is something in my life that I cannot stop doing, I am a slave. If I were truly free, if I were truly free, I would be free to stop. Now, so that's the sin side of it. There we go down a list of sins that we're slaves to. But more, I think the imagery of slavery here isn't just the heart of committing sin. More than just being a slave to the sins I commit, the epitome of slavery, the real heart of slavery in this chapter, is trying to define myself, but what I must do, what I must accomplish, what I must become. The real epitome of slavery, if you really think about slavery in my personal life, in your personal life, what keeps me a slave day in and day out is working to accomplish, to become what I must do, working hard to gain basically acceptance and approval. It's so much of what we do and are wrapped up with in a day, in a week, in a month. It's trying to gain approval from my wife, my kids my coworkers, my friends, my classmates. So much of what consumes our thinking is what I must do, what I must accomplish, what I must become. At the end of the day, when I live for that, when I succeed, when I succeed in that, what happens? Ah, way to go, Adam. Way to go. But what happens when I fail? What happens when I, when I live to that end? What happens when I fail? brings complete and total despair. My success depended on me, therefore my failure also is on me. See, Jesus, at the end of the day, what Romans 6 really is hitting on, Jesus measured up for us so that we wouldn't have to live under the enslaving pressure of measuring up to others, and more importantly, measuring up to ourselves. My biggest fear is, one of my biggest fears, is that most of us convince ourselves that we're actually honoring Jesus with our rules and regulations. 
I think when we work really hard to those rules and regulations and those things I've got to do, I think at the end of the day, my greatest fear is that we think we're actually honoring Jesus and that, we're, that we actually think that we're paying more attention to him and pleasing him more than ever because I'm working hard for him. But at the end of the day, in that situation, I think all we're doing is demonstrating that we believe in ourselves. We believe in Adam Nagel more than we do Jesus. I mean, again, look at verse 6 of chapter 7. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we are dead. We have been released from the law. Just let that sink in. See, the heart of chapter 7, I I hear chapter 7 abused. A lot of people preach chapter 7 to talk about divorce and remarriage and whether it's okay or not okay to get remarried after being divorced. That's not what chapter 7 is talking about at all. Chapter 7, Paul is just trying to use a really clear and simple illustration of what it means to die to something and be free. So it's simply saying is when I walk down the aisle and, and join with my wife in marriage, and I said, I do, the law legally bound me to her and her to me. For me then to walk out of that, out of that church that, that glorious Saturday morning and to go out and link up with another woman is committing adultery. It's not legal. For me to go out, unless I'm Mormon, and go out and marry someone else, it's wrong. It can't happen. I am bound to my wife. So Paul says, and and he, he uses this logic, and he says, what happens then when my wife dies? Legally, what happens? I am now free from that marriage. I died to that marriage. I am now free from that. So what am I now free to do? out and get married to someone else. So Paul is not talking about his remarriage. Okay. What he's really hitting on here is he's trying to use the illustration in a tangible, practical way for us to get our heads around. When I, when someone dies in marriage, I've died to this. i now can live and be alive to someone else. So verse six, when he comes along there of chapter seven, it says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. Jesus Christ said, I came to fulfill the law so that we serve. We don't serve the law anymore so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. At the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus is not just for non-Christians. This is why I am so passionate as a pastor that we become a church that is all about preaching the message of Jesus to this world. Because when I keep that in front of me day in and day out, I am about reaching people that don't know Jesus. I'm trying to constantly remember what it's like not to believe and what it's like to walk in their shoes and how I can constantly get better at reaching and loving and caring for and helping them understand who Jesus is. When we do that, we also keep in front of my mind that the gospel is so important. And it constantly keeps in front of my mind how important it is for me. Growth in the Christian life is the process of receiving the already side of the equation. It's what we've been talking about, the already not yet. It's the already side of the equation. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said seven things when he hung there. One of the things he said is he looked up to heaven, he cried out to God, and he said, it is what? The heart of Christian growth, living as a Christian, is receiving every single day the finished work of Jesus into new and deeper parts of my everyday existence. 
Basically, I put it this way to make this incredibly practical for us. I need, Adam Nagel needs to preach the gospel to my heart. Even though I'm already saved, I already, I've, I'm already in, so to speak. I need to preach the gospel to my heart every single day. Every single day, I need to get out of bed and say, you know what? God, thank you for giving me life. God, if it wasn't for what you have done for me, I would be dead. I would be separated from you. God, thank you for accepting me. God, thank you for approving of me. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for your grace, your forgiveness. Every single day, I need to preach this to my heart to keep me from running back to the law that we so easily want to do. I think as you think about the fact that it's not be like Jesus, I am like Jesus. I think it helps us think less of my performance. Instead, think on Jesus' performance for me. If you're in our quiet time reading right now, our journal, you're in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. What a cool, cool chapter. This past week as I was reading chapter 2, I had tears forming my eyes again because it was kind of cool. I dovetailed with this message. Ephesians chapter 2 says, think of what you were. He, he hammers, Paul, the writer there, hammers on what Jesus has done, what he has performed for us. Keep this in front of you, he says. You were dead and you're now alive. You were separated. And then there's this cool word, but, but God's great love. And his mercy and his grace moved in your direction. When I think on that and I meditate on that and I process that I was dead and I'm now alive, not because of what I have done, because what he has done for me, it frees me. I run and I want to live. I am compelled to live. I am compelled to run in a way that honors him naturally. I don't have to force myself to do it. I don't have to gut it out. I don't have to live with this just do it mentality. Think of the verse in Philippians, cool verse. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 13, the same writer, the apostle Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in the absence, continue, now look at this, catch this phrase, continue to what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's this hard work that he talks about, work out. There's this, there's this reality that we need to do something. We say, well, Adam, there you go. See, we're supposed to perform. We're supposed to do something. Well, look at the very, very next phrase in this verse. For it is who? Who is it that works in you? This is wild. I love how Paul does this. He says, you need to work out your salvation, but guess who does the work? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's a cool verse. I found that probably one of the most practical ways to do this every single day to make sure the gospel gets into my heart and I stay alive to it is this. Ask this question. I love to ask this of myself. Adam, in my journal, I'll write down, what are you really after in life? What truly needs to be there right now that you don't think is? Is it acceptance? Because guess what? If you're living for your wife to accept you so that you're okay, guess what, Adam? I've already accepted you. I've already told you that you're okay. 
And when I can be freed from looking to my wife to tell me that I'm okay, guess what I naturally do then with my wife? I stop trying to work really hard to hear that, and I just serve her and live well with her. What is it I'm really after, Adam? Is it approval? Is it approval from the church? Is it approval from the people you serve? Do you want to hear well done from them, Adam? Is that what you're really after? Adam, preach the gospel to your heart is what I hear God say to me. Who should approve of you? Who has approved of you? Well, you have, Jesus. That's right, Adam. So stop working for their approval. Live for mine, and you already have it. And guess what it does for me? It helps me serve you well. It helps me do what's right and best for you. What am I living for? Am I, am I depending on to provide freedom? Adam, what do you really think you need? Do you think you need more money, Adam, to be free? Is that what you think you need, Adam, more money? You think you need a bigger budget and, and more income? Well, guess what? I love the book of Ephesians. He says, his spiritual riches are mine. I have an inheritance in him that cannot compare to, to Fort Knox. And guess what happens when I find my freedom there as I open my hands up and I give more of what I have. I don't write my tithing checks out of compulsion. Oh boy, here we go again. Got to give 10% to the church. I say, well, God, you have made me rich. As I get that in my head, it's this natural compulsion. What is it that I'm really after? Maybe it's, maybe it's, (laughs) where do I find worth and value? My success in my job? The things I accumulate. Doesn't the gospel already teach us and tell us, Adam, you are worthy. You are valuable. I have crossed heaven and hell to, to close the gap between you and I. So I think that's the most practical thing we can do every day is say, what am I really after? And then allow the gospel to say, you know what? God, Jesus has already done this for me. Another question I like to ask myself on a regular basis, and I'll journal it in my, in my quiet time journal, where do I experience, and I put all kinds of words here, where do I experience agitation? What agitates me right now? Where am I impatient? Where do I have anxiety? How about fear? Adam, what do you really fear right now? Well, I had a lot of fears this past week. As we approached uh, this whole candidating thing with the With the children's pastor, what a tough two weeks it has been for leadership here at Bethany. My heart was heavy this whole, I'd have some of you come up to me, how's it going, how you doing, I'm already excited for the vote inside, I am screaming and I'm like, if you only knew how heavy my heart is right now. I was afraid to have Gerald stand up here this morning and say what he said. I had to stop and ask myself, Adam, why are you so, why do you experience this fear? What is it at the end of the day that drives that fear in you? And it's at those places where I need to be confronted once again with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and allow him to allow me to say, Adam, God has already accomplished for you what you are trying to accomplish for yourself. And when I can live there, you know what it does for me? It helps me to risk and helps me to live bold. It helps me to lavish and outflow with love towards my wife and my kids and you. And people I come in contact with. But if I don't live there, 
allowing the gospel of Jesus every single day to confront in me what he's already done for me, when I work to gain it, when I work to have it, I become nasty. I manipulate. I work really hard to hear you, have you say, Adam, you are okay. You know, at the end of the day, one of the things I've realized is that I am more evil than I ever feared. This is the already not yet. I am more evil than I ever feared, but yet I'm more loved than I ever hoped. And a cool thing to think about. I am more evil than I ever feared. Have you ever just stopped and looked at your heart? When you're going to bed at night and there's quiet hours, the lights are out, the place, the, the, it's quieted down except maybe the barking dog laying in the neighbor's yard out back or, or the, maybe a car or two going up and down the street. You lay there and you just listen to the sounds of the night and it's quiet and it's still and you really look inside your heart. You know, it's scary sometimes what you see. It is scary. When you really step back and evaluate why, what drove you to do some of the things you did that day, what was the motive behind your heart? And what I find at the end of the day, if you're like me, that I'm like, whoa, there's some dark stuff in there. But the reality is, we still like to look at ourselves in a good light. At the end of the day, I am more, I am more evil than I ever feared. But at the end of the day, I'm more loved than I ever hoped. See, moralism and legalism basically says this. If I improve, if I improve then I'll be accepted by God. If I work hard, if I accomplish, if I perform, then and only then will I be accepted by God, by others, and even by myself. But the message of Jesus, Romans chapter 6, I died with him, I rose with him, I live with him. I'm no longer a slave to sin. The gospel announces that everyone that is in Christ is already accepted by God. Not because of what I've done, but because of Jesus' work in me and for me. That's the message that sets us free. The cool thing is, if you ever come to our newcomers class, one of the things we do is we talk about, at that newcomers class, we talk about the history of Bethany. What makes Bethany, Bethany? What helps, what makes us tick? What do we really stick to? What do we live for? And one of the things we do is we tell the creation story of Bethany how Bethany came about, how we originated. And we tell a story of six families, six families who over 50 years ago stepped out to say, we are going to start a church that is free. You know what they said they were going to be free of? Man-made rules. And we're going to preach the true word of God. That was the heart of this church. That was the heart, and that's the heart that's evolved over the years. But I want to challenge us. That was the heart of why this church started. People, precious people sitting right here in this center section, stepped out to do that. I want to challenge us to continue to live that. To continue to every single day say, Adam, where is it that I am working to gain God's approval and acceptance? What is it that I am doing to hear from you that I'm okay And challenge us to stop that pursuit of performance and instead rely on Jesus' performance for me. We want to be free. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. Can you imagine a church that is completely and totally free 
and not dependent on hearing what someone else thinks of us, but dependent on what Jesus thinks of us through the person of Jesus, we become a church that steps out and is bold, is brave, risk, and does some crazy, wild stuff that allows others to look in at us and say, what on earth is wrong with those people? But when we do it, we storm the gates of hell and nothing can stand in our way. So I want to pray for us right now. I want to pray that you really allow the gospel to penetrate your heart every single day. And you learn to live free and not bound up with the performance of things that you think you have to accomplish. God, thank you so much for Jesus. As I think of Romans chapter 6, as we really hit on the already side of this. You tell us that we, those of us that believe in Jesus, we died with you, we rose with you, we live with you. It tells us that the sin nature has been crucified. God, I think of how we live for sin. God, we do it out of desire. No one has to command us to do wrong. No one has to command me to be angry. No one has to command me to shove more food in that I know I shouldn't. No one has to command me to to stop Lusting, no one has to command us to do that, to, to lust. No one has to command us in that way. God, so help us. Help us to live for you in the same way we lived for sin. Help us to realize that we are alive to you through Jesus. God, may we just, as we close singing, amazing grace, may we just allow our hearts to be captured with your grace and your mercy and what you have accomplished for us. May every one of us that we sing out that says we are in Jesus and Jesus is in me, God, may we sing out with all of our heart because we know through Jesus we're accepted, we're approved, we're made holy, we're made right. And God, help us to stop looking to all the other stuff in life for our identity and our worth and our value. Help us to find it in you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.